Sabbatica. I don't know if that was making sense at all. Yes, that is Sabbatica. All right. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Corri. This is the Flickening once again. I am Uncle Curry, who can recall his last meal, but not much further than that. We have a guest from Thailand. Her name is Annie. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Curry. Nice to have you here. And of course, I have, and we have, our ever reliable, the one and only, the creme de la creme of Finnish film podcast hosting, Henrik. Uh, I, I was very certain that you were talking about someone else when you gave all those nice things. <laughs> <laughs> so the Flick Lab concentrates on one film from any genre every week. So therefore, we will drop out like 52 episodes per year. Or that's the plan anyway. Of those episodes, during 2019, we will analyze 20 so-called international films, each from a different country. So this week's film is Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. And to join the challenge or read more related info, you can visit any of our social media pages. More information at the end of this episode. But Annie, yeah. who are you? So I I grew up in Bangkok, was born there as well. And I recently moved to Minnesota, United States, three years ago in 2016 for school. I still go back to Thailand twice every year and I will probably go back and live there one day again. Okay. I study political science and mainly mm -hmm. my focus is on Thai politics and US foreign policy. Yep, that's mostly it. <laughs> okay. How is Minnesota treating you? What's the things to like about Minnesota? <laughs> that's very hard to answer because pers <laughs> personally I grew up in like Thailand where it's 40 degrees every day and it never gets below 20 celsius but in Minnesota it never gets above 20 celsius and it gets below to like negative 40 degrees so it's a very harsh transition for me Mostly it's like winter here lasts about like seven months and the snow is crazy. Minnesota is very different from Bangkok, I expect, because it's a very like urban slash rural, but more rural. So coming from like a big city like Bangkok, I find Minnesota very quiet and the people here can be very passive aggressive too. That's like a known thing. <laughs> Sounds weather-wise very much like Rovaniemi in Finland, <laughs> correct, Henrik? Something like that. It's still quite a nightmare here in Rovaniemi. Except longer winters even. Yeah, longer winters and very, very harsh. What kind of films do you usually like watching, Annie? Anything in particular? Usually I like to watch drama and mystery films. 
I especially like to watch uh, plot twist films. One of my favorite. This is like cliche, but it's Memento. <laughs> I I keep watching it like over and over and over because I was so impressed by it the first time I watched it. It is kind of a fascinating one. In fact, when I watched it, I remember that I had this plan that I could play around with the film and try to put the events in chronological order and so basically ruin the movie and see how it would look like. But <clears throat> thankfully, I didn't do that. But is this film? Your type of film, this kind of a art drama film. Uh, I would say it is, but I like to watch Wes Anderson film. But this one is like a very different art drama because it's very slow and there's not a lot of music, but it tackles on like different themes. It definitely gives off a different atmosphere, and it's just it's not really my vibe because how slow it is. But I enjoy watching it. It wasn't that bad. Besides, like you know, trying to stay awake, but <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. That, that's a really good introduction to the film. <laughs> it, it wasn't that bad, but it was hard to stay awake. <laughs> Do you get the Andy Warhol vibes from this film? If you have seen Andy Warhol movies, any experience with that guy? I personally don't have any experience with Andy Warhol's film, but I did read that like the director of Uncle Bunmi's film got his inspiration from Andy Warhol. Yeah, this is why I brought it up. Let's see what yeah. we find. Henrik knows quite a lot about films, so maybe he can shine in this episode as well. But not to put any pressure on you, Henrik. But <laughs> if I may. Ask so. Do you believe in reincarnation? Uh, yeah, I believe in reincarnation. Just simply because I grew up as a Buddhist. Um, hmm. well, I slightly believe in it. I don't strongly believe in it, but I can't say for sure. Like these things about afterlife, I don't think I'm in the place to say. <laughs> yeah. What about Hendrik? I don't. Share the belief of reincarnation myself. To be completely honest, brutally honest. To be brutally honest, the idea <laughs> that once I'm dead, I would be reborn and I would kind of have to go through another life and then another life and then another life. Another podcast. Actually, to me, it's extremely dreadful and something that. <laughs> If it is real, like if there is a reincarnation after our death, I most definitely would not want to go through the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. I like that's exactly why um the Buddhist teaching is life is about suffering, and like the only way to stop the suffering is to reach nirvana, and that's when you stop reincarnating. And you don't exist anymore, ever again. And that's like the Buddhist mm. end goal. And I can see the value in that teaching and that way of looking at life. I'm not trying to be against the Buddhist teachings in any way, but this is maybe one aspect where the cultural differences between you and me and Kari comes to play because the 
you know, Western Christianity, which is the religion around which we have been brought up, the Christianity does have the theme of reincarnation also, but it's completely different kind of a reincarnation. It's a reincarnation where you get reincarnated in heaven and that's kind of a mm. continuation of your life and you don't reincarnate in the sense that you would once again exist on the face of the earth. Mm. You reincarnate in relationship to the Christian God. Having been brought up around the Christianity from the early childhood might effect on it and make it hard for Western mind to completely grasp the Buddhist theology. Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Annie, have you seen any spirits in Minnesota backwoods? Any monkeys there? <laughs> well, no, I I have not seen any spirits in Minnesota. But uh, in Thailand, I've had to say that, like, I've experienced some and not just me yeah not just me one of my friend does actually see spirits and she's been seeing it throughout her whole lives more intensely in thailand when she moved to la there were some times that she could hear them or she could feel that they're there but she said that like they're not as strong as when she's in thailand she would see like glimpse of them you know their hands or their some parts of their body and sometimes I really couldn't deny the fact that they are there because some things are, get like really suspicious and unexplainable, I'd say. Okay, from here we can perhaps go naturally to Thai beliefs. And there are like uh, hundreds of ghosts. Maybe the, some of the best ones that I picked up online are, I don't know how to pronounce this exactly, but the Krasu. Uh, it's supposed to appear as the image of a beautiful woman's head, but exposed intestines uh, oh, elsewhere. Yeah, that's a one of like very famous folktale. It's called Grasun. I feel like this monster or this ghost is told to children just to scare them. That's what I've been brought up to believe. But spirits usually they don't work that way. If they visit you, they have a purpose and usually it's probably like they're suffering, they need help, they need someone to pray for them, they need someone to give them something through the temple and they're probably hungry, they're probably lost. That's probably why they would visit you. Like mostly I've never encountered anyone who met like ghosts or spirits that want to harm them unless they step into a sacred place and like be very disrespectful or you know if a place has been warned to not go in because the spirits there are very mean then like you shouldn't go in there if you go in there that means you're disrespecting their boundaries and and you deserve what you sh should get okay we could probably continue for a long time talking <laughs> about the ghosts but just to pick one more to the discussion there's one called krahang or karahang oh depending uh -huh. on the region, I understand. Mm -hmm. And oh, this sounds like a really creative <laughs> creature, if I could say that. Wears rice basket lids and flaps them around and flies <laughs> with them at night. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's also another very like common ghost with the Gersun. Like If you heard the Gersun, you would probably heard about the Grahang as well. And mm -hmm. I've personally, I've never heard a lot about where they come from or 
why they exist or what kind of spirits they reincarnate from. But it falls under the same category of like Thai folklore and Thai spirits that is told to like children as well. And also there are a lot of like codes one has to live by so that you do not uh, invite ghosts or spirits that are unwanted and other kind of beliefs. For example, you cannot ever say a baby is cute because then a ghost will come and get the baby. Is this correct? Yeah, this this is actually correct. So you, you have to say like, oh, this baby is so ugly, you know, just to keep the spirits away. Okay, and people generally live by this. Yeah, they do. <laughs> okay. What is the motivation of the spirits to get a beautiful child? Why would they come to claim a child? Well, because basically, like, we think that, like, children are innocent and they, since they're just born, they're, like, really pure. So their soul is, like, more pure than adults who's been sinned and corrupted. So if they come and feed off those souls, they would, like, be in a better place or something like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting also compared to Christianity because Christianity also has this theme of a young born child or a young child being more pure spiritually mm. than a full grown adult, for example. Yeah. But in the Christian mythology, we don't directly have a nameable entity or any clear entity that would have the need to consume a soul or the spirit of the child. Right. So like in Thai culture, like the spirits are based off as like hungry for myrrh. It's like if your spirits and appearing on earth, it means you're not being reincarnated. And that's because you're either stuck to something emotionally, like, you know, like what the film was referencing, or you don't have enough merits to be born into another life. So you always like hungry, lonely, lost in the earth world, somewhere you don't belong. So you would like keep finding people who would like donate you merits, do something good for you, help you be reincarnated. But they believe that spirits who are, who died full of revenge or full of just like jealousy, envy, you know, like just bad traits, they would be stuck in earth as a mean spirit and they would try to like harm other people. Oh, okay. This is something that happens kind of in Finland as well, but maybe for different reasons, or actually it's kind of reverse. So in Finland, we usually avoid taking the last piece of food on the plate because it would be kind of a shameful for me or someone else of Finnish descent to take the last piece because you feel that you're doing something wrong even mm-hmm. if you don't and f- I understand that in Thai culture eating the last piece of food is good because it means you will get a cute boyfriend or a girlfriend yeah, yeah this is uh true but I think it comes off as more of like a joke or like for people to okay, not yeah. waste food <laughs> But um, in Chinese culture, I can say this because I grew up in a Chinese family, they would not allow you to like bang your chopsticks together or bang your utensils together because that would call for a ghost. Okay, yeah. This is kind of a maybe more universal in symbolism, but if a picture of you falls 
and the frame gets shattered, you will die soon. That's not really like a superstitious in Thailand, but I think that's more universal. Yeah. And what about this? Cooking from left to right means you're cooking for the spirits, and that's great. Is this true? I've never heard of that one before. When you are shaking the food, mixing the food, mm-hmm. you do it from left to right, and apparently it's a good thing. <laughs> no, I've never heard of that one before. <laughs> okay. What about if you sneeze? Someone is missing you. Yeah, that one's true, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why did we choose this film? Well, I noticed it won the Cannes Film Festival's Palme d'Or. I found the complicated themes surrounding it fascinating, but I wasn't sure when I jumped into this of quite how deep this thing goes. First, I understood from another Thai person that this would be extremely political film, but Annie would suggest otherwise. Yes. Yeah, I think that. There are some political aspects to the film, but it's very like towards the corner of the eye, and I'm sure that the director is not solely focusing on the political aspect. Although there is some political background to the story, when Uncle Bonmi did mention the communist war and how he dreamed about. The authorities erasing the past. I think that was the most heavily political focus point of the film. Other than that, I don't see much of it. We'll get to this more okay. in detail later. Our experience with the film. I believe uh, for me and Henrik, this has been the first time seeing this. Yes, Henrik. Overall, seeing anything from this director. Yeah, this director is a good term to use because the name is uh, Apichat Pongvera Setakula. I have pr- trouble pronouncing this, but maybe our guest can help us with the pronunciation. Yeah, his name is Atisha Pongvela Setakun. Perfect. <laughs> And this is the first time you have seen this as well. Yeah, this is the first time I've seen his film, but I've heard about him before. I read that the director likes to use the name Joe, so. We can probably just call him Joe for like okay. <laughs> easiness' sake. Yeah. yeah. History and background of the film was the first film ever from Thailand to win Palme d'Or. It was also the first Asian film to won the prize since '97. So it was selected as the Thai entry for the 83rd Academy Awards. Did not make the shortlist. Also won awards in Asian Film Awards, Chicago International Film Festival. And at Dubai International Film Festival mm. for the best cinematography, and one of the cinematographers, I believe the main cinematographer here is something that I also cannot pronounce, but let's say it's uh, Sayambu Mukti Prom. He's actually most known for the drama film Call Me by Your Name, and which got several awards and nominations. And he also did the cinematography for. Suspiria from 2018, the new version, and suddenly, Henrik, I feel like watching the remake. After all, have you seen it? I have, and I would very much recommend watching the remake of Suspiria. Okay, this will be something that will net me being burned at the stake for saying this, but I personally feel that. The remake might be even better than the original one. Honestly, I wasn't a fan of the original. I can see some of its merits, but looking forward to the remake. 
So, more about the background. This was like a final installment in a multi-platform art project called Primitive, which included a couple of short films, a letter to Uncle Bunmi and Phantoms of Nabua, both premiered in 2009. The film was shot between October 2009 and February 2010 in Bangkok and northeast of Thailand, Isan. Annie, you have some inside knowledge from these regions? I couldn't say much about it. I've been towards northeast, but I've not been into like the Isan area. However, I do know that mm-hmm. mostly they are farmers there, just like how Joe depicted the family in the movie. And they are very poor. They live in a very rural place. And Isan people usually are very super superstitious. I would say. Yep. Okay. Also received 3.5 million baht in support from the Royal Thai Ministry of Culture, which I find kind of interesting because this movie still has some of these political aspects about it. Mm. But indeed, this was made before the coup d'etat, so maybe this has something to do with it. There was uh, like a military coup in 2014, and a lot of things changed afterwards, as I understand it. Yes, a lot of things changed afterwards. More things have become censored. I don't think this film was censored, but other film of his were censored for sure. Yeah. And then he also released a new film last year, 2018. It's called Ten Years in Thailand. And I know that one has been removed from cinema because it was heavily political towards southern Thailand. He was like trying to educate everyone about the political situation down south of Thailand but I think it was too controversial that the government decided to censor the entire movie. Well also the director Joe has himself said that he's actually not making a political film. The film is primarily about objects and people that transform and hybridize. That's his quote. Who wants to do the synopsis of Uncle Boomy? I would say Uncle Boomy has an acute kidney disease. And for the rest of his days, he starts to recall his past lives and their possible meaning. That's kind of the story, yeah. I would say differently, because the only scene that I think was related to his past lives was the one that shifted towards the princess in the the lake scene. Whereas, like, the entire of the movie, I don't see much of him and his past life, but him towards his death. Okay. Yeah, in, in a way, I saw also the moment where he, when he reminisces the time when during the Civil War mm-hmm. as a form of trying to remember a past life in a sense that during those times he was a different person and he's now moved past the person he was back then and he's kind of um, recalling the past life in that sense. But... Overall, to me, this movie was more than about the past lives themselves. This was about Uncle Boonmi accepting his death on the final days and going through the process of slowly dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we have any information about cast and crew? Did Annie pick up any actors that would be really famous or that you would know about? No, not at all. I even looked up the cast names and they're, I've never recognized any of them. And I don't think um, 
or any of the cast and crews are famous as well because I think Joe was aiming for like very local, very normal looking cast. So they're probably not famous. As you know, in Thailand, like famous celebrities, famous actors, they have a specific look and type that they have to appear. None of these people in this movie fit in those categories, which I really like because he was focusing on the story more of more than like casting perfect actors or actresses that look good, you know. But I think this this cast and this crew acted very perfect, actually, and very fitting to their roles. This was, like Annie said, appears to be extremely local cast of actors. Notably, for example, the actor who played Poon Mi himself only has this one movie under his name. And also the rest of the cast of the film doesn't appear to have appeared on that many films. Indeed. So moving on. But the director, indeed as mentioned, many of his films have been censored. Ran in Thai authorities. He accumulated notes for like several years after reading the book that this film is loosely based on. He was stuck with writing, so he went to a temple and meditated. Finally, everything came flowing out, and there it was, Uncle Boomy's script. Would it be scene by scene, ladies and gentlemen? On my part, it would be. Yeah, let's go there. So there's a lot to chew on, especially thematically, as this film goes. Okay, so the beginning starts with the water buffalo and the monkey. And it looks like that these are some of the past lives of Uncle Boon Mi. It does seem to be that interpretation that he was born as a water buffalo. It would also be one of the very few scenes where we have an actual close-up of the water buffalo. And for the next mm-hmm. close-up, I think you have to... Well, okay, there's the car scene, but there's very little <laughs> close-ups in this film in a, in a kind of a Thai or Asian region-ish fashion. Then we have the car trip introducing Jen and Tong, and we get to the, what I would call the plantation. We meet this person from Laos that is helping boon me out with his kidney disease. You mentioned that in Thailand there's a lot of racism against uh, people from Laos. Is it specifically for people from Laos? No, it's not specifically for people from Laos, but it is... Specifically on minorities bordering our countries, like Myanmarese, Laos, Cambodians. Not so much from Malaysia, because they don't really come up from the south and like work as an illegal immigrants. But I think specifically like these racism or these like discrimination comes from that these people, you know, they come in and then they work as a very poor position or positions that Thais don't want to work, mostly they're laborers. Myanmarese and Laos are really popular in Bangkok to work as like nannies, uh, housekeeper, security guards, construction workers, you know, those like very low wage workers where, where Thai people don't, don't want to touch. So because of that, they generally don't have like good hygienes, but it's it's really because of the social position they were put in. And I personally go through with 
this because my family does hire a housekeeper or nannies ever since I was born. I, I was always brought up with illegal immigrants nannies and they're usually from Myanmar. Some of them do has passports, some of them don't, but the majority of them actually don't have passports. And I also know that like because Isan borders Laos and Cambodia, there will be a lot of immigrants coming from Laos or Cambodia to work in farmings or plantations. And I'm not sure how they're treated, but from what the film depicted, it captures like a very real life situation of how Thai people unconsciously discriminate these illegal immigrants. When Jen said that, you know, Jai, the Lao worker, is smelly, that's a very common stereotype for all illegal immigrants. That saying even happens in my own family with our workers that we hire to mm-hmm. clean our house or uh, to watch the kids. You said or wrote that also they are not allowed to drive the cab or drive the taxi. Yeah, um, because you do need like a state ID for that. So if they're legal, uh, they can't do that. Right. And they have trouble getting apartments. Yeah, they they can't own any property. Yeah. So if they do, then they have to be on a visa or something like that. But because my experience with illegal immigrants, they would usually stay in their employee's house. So my my nanny and my housekeeper sleeps with us, but she gets like very bad amenities. She stays in like a very small room that isn't even equipped as a bedroom some of them have to share bedrooms some of them have to share bathrooms and those who work in like factories usually they are legal but if they are illegal companies or the factories would have to provide housing for them usually it's very close by or within the factory itself and these are apartments that are owned by the companies so So mm. the illegal immigrants wouldn't, you know, run into authorities. So if they pay rent, they would just pay directly to the company. Yeah. That hires them. So that would have been kind of my next question. So you already replied that. <laughs> the family dinner is kind of the most rememberable scene out of the entire film, and there's so much going on here, and we definitely need some Thai help right here. There was this weird moment where Tong refers to. Uncle Boon me as he, or that's how it was subtitled. I thought it was really weird. He said he can't eat egg yolks, even though Uncle Boon me is right there. Do you have any ideas what's going on right there? Oh, so in Thai, like you don't really use pronouns like you, like directly saying you. You don't really say that. Uh-huh. So you would say like he, him, even if like they're literally like right there next to you. Okay. We always usually like refer a person in in third point of view, or re- would refer them by their names directly. Would you say that their reaction to the ghosts or spirits? What's a better word for this? Ghost or spirit? What would you use? Spirits. Their reaction to the spirit is kind of a pedestrian, wouldn't you say? That they're not even almost surprised. It's like this would happen almost every day. They're a little little bit startled, but not that much. Then they get a nice conversation going with the, with the monkey and the wife from 19 years ago. That scene was very, very weird for me. I think the only natural 
acts that I saw in that scene was when Tong was very shocked when Hui appeared, and that's a very natural reaction. But I expected that because Tong comes from Bangkok, you know, where these things don't usually happen. But for Uncle Bunmi and Jen, I think they are used to it because they expect that there were spirits around the house, anyways. But I think, for my personal opinion, Joe, the director, was trying to make that scene a normalized scene because he's trying to not separate the spiritual and the real world. And this is when he plays with the theme of like space time or like making everyone human or making everyone ghost. Uh, he's trying to distort the reality by normalizing the two worlds. And I think that's why that scene was depicted the way it was. Yeah. And it's the sickness that invites the spirits. Is this something that is also a common belief? Yeah, it is very common. And I say this because my grandma also experienced this. I don't know if it's true, but she did tell me that when she was very sick in a hospital, she had like a reaper visiting her and was going to take her away. She was not on drugs. I was sure she was not on like morphines or anything that was sedating her. She was just really sick. But she said she did converse with the reaper and told him that her work here is not done. She's not ready to leave, so he can't take her. And then she continued to live on for seven more years, and then she died like suddenly. Oh, okay. I had just uh, one kind of a close one passed away. My my grandfather and well i'm not religious in any way but the night after that i saw a dream where he was alive and we were eating around this table that could be directly from the bible and he was (laughs) just smiling and uh, everybody was asking him like didn't you die and i don't think he said anything and he just smiled (laughs) so that's kind of a I don't know if a nice experience, kind of a creepy, but <laughs> hope he's doing well somewhere there. This is more of kind of a humorous line, I suppose. Why did you grow your hair so long when the son, the boon song, <laughs> arrives to the scene? Yeah, so that that was also very surprising for me that Jen reacted that way <laughs> when her son showed up. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it was one of um, Joe's purpose to normalize everything and, and try... <laughs> Trying to, like, being very inclusive towards the spirits and the half-monkey man. Yeah. Also mixing, like, technology with this kind of a rural belief scenes. Like, the son said that he tried to understand Hui's camera, and that's why he disappeared. He was obsessed about chasing a monkey with a camera. <laughs> so he took a lot of, <laughs> lot of photos. He searched for this thing in the photo... And it was the monkey ghost. And in order to reach the monkey ghost, he apparently had to have sex with the monkey. Which then completes the cycle of Boon Song in this life, as I understand it. After having sex, he started to grow hair and left this world. And actually, could this be some kind of a bridge with the princess scene where the princess, I suppose kills herself by mating with the catfish and then also leaving this world. I wasn't making relations to those two scenes until you said it just now, which really made sense. But um, 
those two things are some the both things that in this film I couldn't really wrap my head around at all. I do understand yeah. that the princess scene was very mythical, very folktale like, and I could see that happening in like children's book or or just like stories around bonfire, you know. But I have never heard anything about mating with a monkey ever in my life at all. Yeah, I thought that this would. Remain as a mystery for us in this yeah. episode because I'm not sure if you are supposed to completely understand this film. Anyway, I don't think so. <laughs> And uh, when they leave the dinner table, there's a moment where Jen goes downstairs and uh, she makes a notion that there's too many bugs in this country house. Is there any special meaning for this scene? Do you think because it lasts like for a long time as this do? Yeah, that scene was took a while longer than I thought it should, and I couldn't try to figure out the meaning behind it much besides the fact that maybe Joe was trying to compare the life in Bangkok with the life in rural because there is also another scene where Jen was holding the mosquito bat. And was you know sapping those mosquitoes, yeah. And that I could relate it because in Buddhist belief, it's a sin to kill animals. And when she was walking downstairs, she was stepping onto all those insects. Although, like, yes, they were dead, but obviously, I could see that she doesn't like those insects, and she was willing to you know sap those mosquitoes even if she knew it was a sin to do so. It's one of like the five things you can't do as a Buddhist. One is to kill animals. Okay. Yeah. And I I was brought up to not kill mosquitoes. You did make the notion of killing the insects, and by that act, Chen going against the Buddhist beliefs, and it kind of got me thinking if the director is trying to make the case for the rural lifestyle and against the more urbanized living because Jen also is a character in the film who makes the notion that she would like to live in the city and she does not like the countryside because she feels that there are too many spirits on the countryside and she does not come into contact with the spirits That made me think that Chen might be showing us a character who wants to leave the rural areas of Thailand and move into a city. And by the act of killing the insects, Chen is portrayed in this negative light, showcasing that persons living in the urban areas and the big cities are kind of disconnected from the. Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist values and the whole coexistence with the spirits and with the reincarnation itself. So Bunmi believes that since he killed a lot of communists, therefore karma will now get him. This is something a little bit political right here. But there's a lot of moments that kind of feel like filler material unless you can find something in them. Like, is it important for us to learn that if Chai can flirt with girls or not out of town, and is it important that we look at the plantation workers and learn some French? Is it important that we inspect the honey at the plantation or discussions about the anti-UV cream or throwing a stick to the dog? 
Or is it just kind of portraying the life and getting us into the mood and the atmosphere? For my personal input, it's very normal for Jai to be flirting with women from Laos. I always expect that because that's what always happens when we hire illegal immigrants or immigrants in general. They would always leave us to get to go back home, get married, have kids and for someone at home. And this surprises me too because... I don't know how they communicate with someone so far away with like very less technology. Regardless, I still think that that particular scene shows how even if illegal immigrants like Jai are treated well under their employee's house, how like Uncle Bumi really likes Jai and treats him like a normal person, Thailand is still not home for them because they're illegal here. Even if they're not illegal, I would still say that it's very hard to be their home because they don't speak the language. Therefore, they would probably believe in different things. They would probably have their own beliefs, which comes with their culture, comes with their language. I was a bit thrown off when the workers spoke French, but then I remember that Laos was also colonized by the French. But that scene, I was really impressed that Joe put that in because Thai people really look up to white-skin-colored people, especially anyone from Europe, anyone from North America. If you're white-skinned, you have blonde hair, you have brunette hair, and you speak French, you would look very prestigious and everyone would want to associate with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, whereas in this film, you have these brown-skinned people coming from Laos and speaking French. It still doesn't make their status more prestige or make their position likely to be associated with. And that's the contrast I see that Joe tries to put. Yeah, there's a lot of small things that probably fly past most of the audiences outside of Thailand or nearby regions. Uh, there was one IMDb commenter that was at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010 to experience the film. And he said, quote, The walkouts began about six minutes in and continued unabated. My two companions both fell asleep, exclamation mark. I managed to stay awake, <laughs> although I tried otherwise. And when A and B both woke some 45 minutes later, we also joined the line <laughs> for the exit, end quote. So I would say likewise, the people that praised this film might be praising some points that might not have been really the key of this film, or maybe it is kind of a you can decide on your own what it means to you, but I'm surprised that this even won the festival prize because there's so many layers that are tied to Thailand that it might be kind of hard to understand or appreciate in full form. Henrik, how was your first experience watching this film? Was it like extremely easily palatable or nothing of the sort? And nothing of the sort, actually. This was very hard film to through, especially on that first viewing. I kinda have to admit that I too was, much like any I too was covered dropping out of the film <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, it has this meditational quality. I would say that if you meditate for one hour before you watch this film, you will have no trouble at all. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> this requires a lot of patience for the mm. average viewer, including me. 
Well, the film does have this dreamlike attitude, and it feels like a dream. I am certain that that is something that the film does on purpose, but unfortunately the the downside of that feeling can be exactly that, that you reach this almost meditative state yourself while watching the film, and if you reach that state, you no longer actually fully take in the movie itself, you are just kind of uh, sitting there and letting the movie go past your eyes. Yeah, it has this quality that every scene kind of drags on and on and on and on, making the point that you are not here to necessarily to make sense out of it, I would say, but rather to get in the vibe of the scene. You have so much time to get to learn the soundscape when you're just staring at the frame of a forest for like two minutes. Yeah, for me it was like, I find it really hard to focus sometimes, but because when something happens in the film, it was so confusing that usually if I find such films this confusing, I wouldn't be intrigued to continue watching it, but <laughs> I don't know how um Joe makes me keep wanting to figure out more finding answers to why he did what he did or why things happened the way it did. So even if it was like really slow paced, really not much action and very little sound, very little dialogue, I still find myself like being able to continue on watching it. Yeah, indeed. And the people that did not like this film, I think they miss something when they say that this is just pretentious filmmaking. Because when you really start to, when I got your notes about this film, Annie, and started to read about it, you know, there there is a lot of things that connect together. And I think it's, for most of the part, quite understandable film, actually. But <laughs> let's get to the maybe the weirdest part here, which is the catfish <laughs> and the princess story. The shots are a bit weird. I don't know why it's colored like in a bluish, greenish tone and kind of tinted dark. It's, I guess, supposed to be some kind of a nighttime or something supernatural because it has been filmed during daylight, but it's been dimmed down a bit. So not sure why. My guess would be, like you said, that it is post-edit job and they have been trying to convert the scene into a night scene. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. It doesn't work so well, but uh, on the first go I didn't even pay attention to that. Princess lacks love, that's the thing, and then the princess sees the reflection of herself from, don't know, 20, 30 years ago. But why is this catfish torturing the princess? Is it just to lure some ghostly or ghastly catfish sex moment? <laughs> or <laughs> that, that was also my question. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. So the catfish has sex with the princess, and I understand that then she dies. Or you could die that way. I wasn't sure if she died. Like, I didn't know what happened to her, because the scene cut off right where... I think it was underwater scene, where like a lot of catfish was just swimming around. So I don't know what actually happened to the princess, because she, before she stepped into the water and gave her offerings she was like oh please make me young and beautiful and white or whatever again and 
it might be meaning that she died because the only way to go back to being young again is to be reincarnated, which she couldn't accept herself. And she was very disassociated with her past memories. She was talking of her young reflection as if it's not her. And I think the scene reflects a lot with how Bunmi was aging and losing his health as well. And the reflection in the water of the young princess is kind of like how youngness is frozen in time, like how Hui, the wife who died 19 years ago, appeared. And she was looking very young when she died 19 years ago. She didn't wither. She looked like a normal human being, just like when she died. But because I think this catfish scene did a really good job in, for me, indicating how the dead would stay young and how the princess would have to die and be reincarnated to become young again. Whereas Bunmi, the living, ages and wither, finally. Yeah, it kind of feels like all of the characters that are the past incarnations of Bunmi are a little bit lost. Even the water buffalo is now kind of lost. (laughs) Henrik, your thoughts on why a princess is having sex with a catfish? I would actually very much pick Annie's point here. What the princess is trying to achieve and what, to me, the reflection on the water is supposed to be, it is basically it's the catfish making its offering to the princess, showing that the princess could kind of be young and be beautiful and the whole princess catfish mating scene would, like Annie suggested, be the catfish helping the princess to die on this life so she could reincarnate once again as someone different, someone who once again is young and beautiful. Guys, there was a YouTube like essay of this film. And he said that in this film all traditional thresholds are permeable. Sounds very fancy, but after all I think this film is actually quite linear in the end. Like the princess stuff is, you can see it as a flashback. It's just a momentary interruption of the main storyline of Uncle Boonmi. I also felt that this was extremely linear film. Yeah. The underlying narrative that is going on in the film is, like you said, it is linear and I would also say that it's pretty simple one. So basically what happens underneath the surface in this film story-wise is pretty simple storyline of a man accepting his death and facing it. Then there are a lot of symbolism and... Like, for example, the Paul princess scene, which are kind of a put on a top of the basic underlying storyline. But that still would be kind of a added element to the main storyline and still wouldn't make, in my opinion, it does not make the underlying main storyline that hard to follow. Yeah, absolutely. Any anything about this uh, very long shot of the of Tong and Chen looking at the TV. I think reading into it, Joe was trying to 
show how Tong is from Bangkok and Jen clearly expresses that she likes the urban lifestyle. People from Bangkok are very addictive to screens, whereas Uncle Bunmi, we never see a scene where he's just sitting there and watching TV. He's always like doing something else, looking at pictures, being with nature. But these two, no. they were on screen watching television until they've been called to go do something else. And then this happens again when Jen was in the apartment room in Bangkok, I believe, watching television with her, not sure if it's her daughter or her niece, but they were basically doing the same thing as they were in the countryside. And that's something very Bangkok can do like wherever we go we just want to watch tv and very very addicted to screens and temptation and distraction we couldn't live without connections to the outside world and it contrasts really well with how uncle bunmi lives his life yeah okay then uncle bunmi says that he has to go he's not sure where but somewhere that happens to be a cave where Uncle Boonmi was first born in his first form, if I understood correctly. You said, Annie, that the cave scene particularly made you think about how one doesn't have a clear distinctions between their past and present lives. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, so it started with Hui became very concrete and was like fixing Boonmi's wound and helping him medically and then hugging him very tightly. That one surprised me very much, and then she also follows him into the cave and like took out his tube from his, I think, his lungs. And that kind of physical contact with spirits kind of just makes me think of how the spirits and human beings can coexist very well, and there's no distinction at all between the two, and how boy who has died 19 years ago can come back and live like a normal person and that way the timeline between past present and future was kind of blurry and not very important anymore and especially when Bumi was walking into the cave and he was like talking about his dream that dream is very relevant to what is happening in Thailand right now when he talks about how the government, you know, the authorities yeah. have the power to erase anyone associated with the past. And that's where I was inspired with the idea of how the authorities have the power to control the past, the present and the future because they still currently do and they will still erase anyone that says anything about the past that they don't want to be heard. I feel like this film's setting is very old because of the film camera that the son was mentioning and the technology I see in the film was kind of not modern. But what Uncle Bunmi was saying about his dream appears to be something very old but is also present in his present but also present in our present as well. Yeah, he makes the point that the cave is like a womb. Maybe mm -hmm. hinting that now that he's in his past, he kind of feels more secure there. There is this very long quote during the still images, which I guess is what you mentioned, the like the dream that he has. 
Maybe we can go through the quote here because it relates to this. So it's, the future city was ruled by an authority able to make anyone disappear. When they found past people, they shone a light on them. That light projected images of them onto the screen. From the past until their arrival into the future. Once those images appeared, these past people disappeared. I was afraid of being captured by authorities because I had many friends in this future. I ran away. But wherever I ran, they still found me. They asked me if I knew that road or this road. I told them I didn't know. And then I disappeared." End quote. This made me think that the ghosts are, or the spirits in this film could also be seen just as the suppressed past of Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. It's still very, very suppressed and very repressed. So, especially what I think Joel did by telling this communist story through Bunmi's dream was that how the Thais used to fight the communists from Laos in the border of Thailand and Laos. There used to be a war, which we don't talk about. We're not taught in classrooms or in schools. And probably no one has knowledge of this happening at all. It's not, it's not a big deal. I think a lot of people also forget that there was an era in the 1960 and the 1970 where the US gave us a lot of money to fight off communists during the Cold War. But that money was mainly well, it was also used to fight the Lao communists, but it was also used to fight the Thai people who were branded as communists when they're actually not communists. They're just not pro-monarchy, but because the monarchy received the fund directly from the US, they get to say how that fund is being used. And of course, it's going to be used on their side to promote monarchy, constitutional monarchy, the power and the authority of the monarchy, and whoever is against that is branded as communist. Do you know what's the significance in the still images of the Thai people using the monkey as a slave? Is this kind of people from Laos then? Yeah, I think it symbolizes the immigrants from Laos or people who are not Thai, people who don't belong to Thai culture, but it could also signify the ethnic native tribes who were already on the borders because the border was just drawn in 1945, you know, after World War II officially ended. So we did not have a clear distinction between who's Thai, who's not. And the Laos language is actually very similar to Thai language. So I think that picture depicts the cleansing of ethnic tribes around the border. The thing I kind of took notice, and this is once again something where my Westernity is showing, is the way of dying through the spirits. It's different quite a lot from the Western way of portraying the act of dying. In West, what we have very strongly is the character of Grim Reaper, who, even though Grim Reaper as a character has changed a lot throughout the the history, the way how he is being depicted, has changed the kind of a modern common idea is that he is someone who appears on on the moment of your passing. During those last few inhales you take before you die. 
often very kind person or if not kind at least uncaring in a sense that he's just here to do a job and he appears on your deathbed he does not hurt you in any way but he just kind of takes you with him to the afterlife instead of that how the spirits work in Uncle Poonmay they in turn are extremely partaking in the process they show up way before Poonmay actually does die in the film and what the spirits are they are extremely comforting to Poonmay telling him that it's okay and being there with him by his side as Poonmay kind of accepts his own death and once Poonmay finally has accepted that he has to die Poonmay himself still kind of has to make the act of passing on by through a physical act of labor he has to travel to the cave in his poor health and with his kidney disease which in my reading of the film was fatal act it was what eventually killed Poonmay so th- I kind of found it fascinating how this difference between the versions of death in the western culture where it's just Grim Reaper who takes you with him during the last breath and with this film where the spirits very much take part in the process and in a nice way and where you kind of you yourself have to put in a lot of physical effort before you actually do die. Okay. You know, every shot basically in this film is extended, but there is an extended shot of of small fishes in the cave. I was looking for some connection from this, but I guess it's just also... Maybe some of those fishes will be people in the next life, or it's making a nice connection to the catfish, or... The fishes in the caves are blind, too. Wouldn't those kind of be the past people who are fishes on this life? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, then Tong leaves the cave, apparently forgetting that Jen is there, just leaves her behind, uh, never mind her. Maybe he's just out to get some help, because Uncle Boonmi is in a very bad condition, dead. What's your thoughts on that, what's happening there? Why does he just leave? Is he just very eager to become a monk right now? <laughs> I don't think anyone would be eager to become a monk, especially after their relative dies. But I personally don't have any thoughts why he suddenly climbed out of the cave, besides the fact that he probably needs someone to come and get Uncle Bunmi's body if he is actually dead by that time. That would yeah. be logical. Yeah. And the next scene is the funeral, which combines something new and old and he made the notion that this is kind of done because it's something that has to be done but is the neon sign behind something that is necessary i feel like most of thai funerals are very extravaganza and they usually do this because they feel like they are honoring the dead by throwing them the last party to make it just really fancy really big the more fancy you are the more you feel yeah. like you have money or the more you feel like they're gonna be better off in another life it just looks to me that scene looks really superficial but 
like all Thai funerals, they all do look superficial with all the neon light decorations and stuff like that. It also happened with uh, my grandma's funeral. It was even more extra than that scene. I don't see the necessity of it, but that's just the norm of Thai people. That weddings, you have to make it really big. You have to make it really fancy. Funerals, you have to make it even bigger to show how much wealth you have. Yeah, so that's the point that you wanted to make. That it's a fancy funeral, but also at the same time kind of humorous or weird, right? Because it's combining the old and the new. Yes, I I very much think so. That the first two shots of that funeral scene was only seen as Dong becoming a monk and Jen praying to the other monks, and we did not see the funeral box yet. But when the camera pans out to the wide angle, and I saw that, to me it was very contrasting towards like the temple where the funeral was held. You know, there were so many fans that already signifies the lack of. Technology, the lack of amenities in the temple, but this the funeral, the box thing, it stood out so much that it looks like it doesn't belong there. It looks like it's um something from the future almost, and that's where it's a little bit funny for me. I too was very kind of a surprise to see all the neon signs and. All that stuff in the funeral because that actually is something that you most definitely would not see in a Finnish funeral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though you can have rock bands perform in churches nowadays, and you can see the priest playing uh, electric guitar, and I think it's wow. really bizarre, or a rapping priest. Oh <laughs> wow! I. Actually, have to confess, I haven't seen any of that in a funeral. <laughs> okay, not in a funeral, but uh, maybe something more, more <laughs> exhilarating. I do acknowledge that in Finland, the church is trying to modernize itself. Yeah, please stop doing that. Yeah, and at times those attempts do seem quite desperate and something that. Actually, quite cringe-worthy. Yeah. But I, in Finland, the whole church business and funerals, especially, are very low on aesthetics. Like they are extremely simple, and there really is not that much in them. Mm, mm. Yeah, but it's that's very Christian-wise. But supposedly. Thai funerals are not supposed to be fancy as well, but I think because of the integration of technology and modernity, people appears to feel like they are obligated to use those things to decorate any kind of events. Funerals in the Western world does seem a lot more simpler and more subtle than funerals I've seen in Thailand. I'm not sure why this is a difference. Or why Thai people seems like thinks that this is necessarily besides the fact that they feel like they want to throw a last party for the dead to commemorate or to honor them. I think that's what their mindset is at when they were doing those fancy funerals. If you don't mind me asking, how do you feel that affects the process of the funeral? Like, does it make The funerals more light in a sense. I was about to ask that. Yeah, 
because the Western version is kind of extremely grim and. For example, yeah. in in Finland, where they are, like you said, very simple and very subtle, they are very heavy experiences to go through, and you are supposed to feel this extreme sadness in the funerals and really feel that someone now has passed on. Does this more modern throwing a big party? in the honor of the one who has passed, does that make the funerals an easier process? I think it definitely does. And I'm not sure if Western funerals are held more than one day, but funerals in Thai cultures definitely are held on, I think, around seven days at most. So to lighten up for a relative's who has passed away, like for me when my grandma died, I had to be there all seven days. And just to experience the funeral, if it was grim or sad or very intense, I don't think I could be there for seven days straight. But because of all like the flowers, the lights, and we even had like a mini waterfall in the funeral. But that was very fascinating for me to see. We had some singing, some performance, and... We have a lot of food. We have food every day for the people who come. So I think it's more kind of like catering towards guests or people who want to come to honor the dead. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. In some cultures, funerals are an extremely happy experience. People are celebrating for the death of of someone because they see that they have now now gone to some better place. Yeah, well, that also, but I wouldn't say like exactly of course, a celebration. No. Yeah, but it's something with like not wanting it to be an omnibus vibe. Yeah, I mean, I fall somewhere in the middle here that because as you have pointed out, Annie, it's just kind of a, according to Buddhist beliefs, I understand, just part of the natural cycle. People come to this world and then they die and the cycle repeats. And there is nothing specifically sad or happy about it. It just is what it is. And I kind of try to think it in that way. That I do not always share the sorrow of some people, even if some close one dies. Because I'm not sure why. Because it's so natural. And of course it's painful that you cannot anymore be in touch with this person at least in this life but yeah i i think the person who has deceased probably doesn't see it as such of a grim thing as well no i mean in western tradition i could say the act of passing for the one who has passed it almost should be a joyous moment not the act of dying itself but in the christian mythology after passing you are to go to heaven and to join in commune with God, which is supposed to be kind of the ultimate prize or the ultimate goal you can achieve in your life. The heaven, the everlasting happiness, and finally being free of any mortal illnesses and any discomfort you may have experienced while you were alive. So in that sense, the funerals and passing on it almost should be a celebrated moment, because that person now is in commune with God. I will get burned in hell for saying this, but maybe they are <laughs> sad in these events. Also because 
some people think it this way that now this person is going to be everlasting and he will have to continue forever and ever and ever and ever an existence that he or she does not want helping his relatives from the cloud <laughs> and never getting a break like George Carling would say bless his heart but uh, also like death can be a nice opportunity to remember all the nice qualities about a person i mean there's a lot of public figures i could i could probably name drop which i won't which haven't been exactly wonderful people but at the same time i think if at all possible it's nice to remember what good they brought in this life yeah. i don't know if you have to dwell on the things that they did wrong there may be some exceptions <laughs> I, i would most definitely make the case that it depends on the people yeah so the next scene is basically getting to the final moments we get the scene where thong is now a monk comes in mm-hmm. breaks the code because he's not supposed to have any contact with anyone who is not a monk or is it just a woman with anyone who's not a monk but mostly a woman yeah And you said you felt uncomfortable seeing the monk taking a shower. <laughs> yeah, very, very uncomfortable. I was really shocked at first when he appeared at the apartment. So, okay, I was expecting it. If you can't sleep at a temple, then of course, and you just lost someone very close to you, you would want to be close to your family. I understand that. But I was very surprised that he asked to take a shower and then after that he changed into his normal clothes as if he has stopped being a monk suddenly. But usually in Buddhism, there is a process to leaving the monkhood. You know, if you've become a monk, there needs to be like a proper ceremony to take you out of that code, that life, that law, because monks practice very different cause different restrictions than normal Buddhists. So that itself was very shocking for me. And especially when Jen said, Tong, what are you doing here? You know, it wouldn't look good if someone see you entering an apartment with two women in it. I find that like really funny because I think Joe was really reflecting on how monks are behaving in Thailand right now. There's been like a lot of news that Monks has been conducting like misbehavior, such as entering a woman's apartment, entering an apartment, or even having sex in temples. In this case of the film, it's definitely for that purpose why Tong visited the two women. It's probably because he needed closure after he had lost someone close to him. Is it shocking to see it mainly publicly on celluloid, or? Do you think this is something that happens almost every day that the monks break the rules and want to have this contact with social media and relatives? Nowadays, like most monks do have contact, do have like social media presence, and it has become a norm almost that monks are on Facebook and can contact like other people when they need to. I'm not sure if this is actually like in the code law that they can't but even like high status high position monks they do have contacts with just normal human beings like my mom would drive monks to places if they requested her to i find that very weird because i don't think monks should have desires to request anything from anyone but of course if it's like a medical situation then that's another thing yeah 
Is it fair to say that Tong is doing this basically out of uh, tradition and doesn't have this big connection being a monk, but he just wants to do it so that he is viewed socially okay? Yeah, I would say so, because the script of his referred to how the monks beside his compartment has a computer to check his email on social media, whereas he has nothing. So he probably feels that this is a good justification or that what he is doing is socially acceptable. But honestly, I think him taking off his robes and not putting them back on and like just going to restaurants, I think that's not acceptable, at least for me. I don't think monks should behave that way. Yeah. So do you think Uncle Joe is kind of uh, saying with this movie that there is something about the old ways of life that just do not work in practice. We always have some distractions and maybe he's just making this yeah. point and people don't want to see that. Yeah, I think he's making a very valid point that like monks nowadays in this modern time is very tempted to distractions and to like modern appliance. But the fact that particular scene is being showed on screen to state the truth that not every monk can adhere strictly to the code law is very disturbing to ties simply because like we always have this picture in our mind that monks are supposed to behave this way this way this way and if they don't they're condemned as bad monks and they should go to hell actually but in reality the majority of monks do not adhere to strict monk codes at least they would have a social media profile, they have a telephone so they can contact other people, something like that. Yeah. Now, maybe this is actually the weirdest part of the film. Like, What happens here? We have Tong and Jen walking out of the room, but actually Jen and Tong and is it Jen's uh, daughter who stay there anyway. So either the ones that stay watching the TV are spirits for some reason, and then yeah, well, what's going on? Um, Henrik can go first on this one. <laughs> <laughs> you really picked up... I, I can try a guy from the street as well. <clears throat> you you really picked quickly on how, how this podcast works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... Well... Apparently, the like as mentioned before, something like this is happening here, that the supernatural or the spiritual coexists perfectly with the reality as we know it. But not sure yeah. exactly why it's like this. Why, why is there two of these people now? I think that's a purposeful, open-to-interpretation ending that Joe tries to achieve, and he's achieved it really well. <laughs> Especially even after we saw that that weird scene and then it cut to the restaurant where Jen and Tong were just sitting and eating and then it cuts back to the apartment scene where the three of them are still sitting there. And then we the audience comes to think of like, okay, so are there really two Tong and Jen or we're just being confused by the director? And I think this ending is really open to interpretation. I'm not exactly sure if it's spirits-wise because none of them died. And what's even more interesting, Tong is the only person who noticed this, where Jan, I don't know if she did notice this, but if she did, she wasn't reacting to it at all. She was 
completely oblivious to it. So I don't know if she's seeing what Tong is seeing. And I think why Tong is the only one who's seeing this might be because he broke the monk code. So he's seeing something really weird. Ah, well, yeah. How interesting take. I thought that Chen did see the spirits or not spirits, but maybe she after all didn't, yeah. At first when I was watching this scene, I thought that there's something politically disturbing on the television, but then they show the doubled characters. (laughs) (laughs) Then they go to the restaurant, they have some chat and music is playing. I don't think there's... Do you have something to add to that scene? Mm, No, not really. Yeah. And we're back to the television, our modern disturbance and pop music plays and credits roll. Henrik, you can breathe now. That's Uncle Boonmi. <laughs> I am actually really relieved that that is the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> Guys, there's so much going on here and I really can't wait to still hear your personal opinions on the entire opus. So, let's soon get to that. Well... Let's have some humor, shall we? Let's get one terrible YouTube comment out of the way. Quote, this is a random comment from the internet. You run out of ideas these days that you call art a condom with a smile on it to express happiness. Fucking brainless people with no sense of living than creating weird shit that comes by smoking your own asses. If you want to talk about art, come with something of history books, cause you can barely find a real art today, and this for the sake of God is dog shit. Obviously I'm not a weed smoker like you who calls art that piece of shit. My previous comment was deleted for saying the pure truth, worst shit ever of a film. Don't ever spend your money on it. End quote. I think that's kind of extreme. <clears throat> but um yeah that's definitely taking it too far <laughs> <clears throat> yeah yeah taking into account everything we have said here for like two hours i think there's more to it than that so wonderful to get this kind of a context in this podcast so favorite performance who wants to go in this order first i can try i can try i think i'll go with the princess she actually has to show kind of a range of emotions in that moment. I think for me it was Tong who really impressed me with his acting because maybe because I relate with him the most, you know, coming from Bangkok and having to live in the countryside. But I find his reaction to things the most natural, his motivation for his action the most logical and the way he just expresses those motivations really lines up to my expectation. Yeah, if you could name a, like a lead character here, maybe that would be Thong, yeah. That was actually quite good call, I must admit. To my great shame, I myself did not pick up all those nuances in his performance. To my eye, they were all extremely deadpanned. They don't show a lot of emotions, if I may interrupt in, in that way. It wasn't the kind of style that Joe was looking for here, a more traditional way of acting, perhaps more wooden acting? I don't find it very wooden acting, I would say, but okay. his way of acting is definitely like different from other characters. Yeah. Henrik? Yeah, I, I got kind of a sidetracked by the notion of, of a wooden acting. I'm not completely sure 
how to exactly approach quote-unquote wooden acting in the film, but... It was a notion that was made online. I'm not sure if it's true. Well, I would almost say that in a way it is. The acting here is something that doesn't express that much. Yeah. For example, facial expressions and things like that. It's extremely subtle. It's very limited in its expression. And in a way, I can say how that would be called wooden. Taken that into a notion, of course, that is, at the same time, you kind of have to make the notion that that is something that you face repeatedly in art house cinema. But if I would have to pick my favorite performance, I guess that would go to Poon Mei himself. But I really don't have that strong of a reasoning behind my choice. Yeah. Well, we are so thorough, we should really rename these the slow categories, but... <laughs> favorite scene? Are we ready for that? Favorite scene? Mm, definitely the dinner table scene. There's so much going yeah. on, and it's a great meditative scene, and we see the monkey that features in all the <laughs> box art, and it's a great moment. Yeah, I feel the same with Carrie here, that the family reunion at the table was very magical and very well done yeah it was most definitely the most ambitious scene of the film both in a sense how the film itself was being edited during that scene and also by what all went on during the scene for example the monkey going through the photo book what did you think about that (laughs) 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 that's kind of weird Well, it was, it was, but in a way it kind of made sense in that regard that it was Poon Mei kind of connecting with the monkey with something that the monkey had previously shown interest of. Yeah, we kind of touched upon on this, but kind of very important perhaps to know that these uh, spirit characters actually seem to become flesh, but also are able to just disappear at will. Also something, I don't know if it's related to technical mistake, but when Tong had the glass of water to Huai in this scene, also Tong's hand becomes transparent. I don't know if there was any point to that, but that happens. I did not see that. I did not recognize Tong's hand become transparent at all. Yeah. Well, favorite quote. I would go with, um, well, it's kind of an easy one. What's wrong with my eyes? They are open, but I can't see a thing. Or are my eyes closed? Maybe you need time for your eyes to adjust to the dark. My favorite quote is when Jai says, I feel like I'm the strange one here at the dinner table where there's a half-ape and a spirit sitting right there. (laughs) And I, on my pick, I, I choose the heaven is overrated. There is nothing there. (laughs) That was great. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Favorite kill? <laughs> well, I would go with the audience members who couldn't stick with this film. I would say the same thing. That was definitely my kill. <laughs> also, like the old, the long shots of like silence and nothing, and like the same pictures. I'm like what? <laughs> oh, ye of little faith! I on my end, I picked a princess who gets killed by. By fucking catfish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
or supposedly gets killed. But that, I agree with you. Yeah, that that's also the moment when you most definitely know that you are watching Uncle Poonmei who can recall his <laughs> past lives. Because I did watch this film in a company with some of my friends who really didn't pay any attention to the film itself. They just gave it a glance every now and then. And there was this moment when I was asked by them to describe them, the film I was watching, and that was the exact scene that I described to them. (laughs) 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 That's definitely Uncle Boon me. Okay, let's get a little distraction going on here. What's your favorite Thai food? (laughs) I probably can't comment because I'm not an expert on this one, but... Well, what have you tried so far? I'm interested um, to hear yours and Henrik. <laughs> I actually have to confess that I don't know that much about Thai food. Mm. Finland is the promised land of Chinese restaurants. And w- with that notion, it kind of does distort the Asian food cuisine in Finland in a way that it is very possible that at some point I have actually eaten real Thai food, but I just haven't realized it because I've got so used to the idea that all the Asian food you can get in Finland is Chinese. Mm. Is Thai food also very noodle-based? No, I would say, well, that's difficult because I think there has been some fusion with the Chinese food and Chinese food is somewhat like noodle-based. We, I think we do a good balance with rice and noodle, but my favorite Thai food is actually boat noodle. Okay. Have to try it when I get the chance. <laughs> First image that comes to mind from this film, now that we have successfully reset our brains away from Uncle Boonmi, I would still say... Actually, I would say the dinner scene. I would still say the red eye monkey captures like my first image even after i watched the film and before i watched the film oh yeah there was a notion made about those eyes yeah the director joe said that quote i was old enough to catch the television shows that used to be shot on 16 millimeter film they were done in studio with strong direct lighting the lines were whispered to the actors, who mechanically repeated them. The monsters were always in the dark to hide the cheaply made costumes. <laughs> uh, their eyes were <laughs> red lights, so that the audience could spot them. So yeah, red eyes are originating from terrible costumes of the past. That makes sense, because the son's costume was also terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I would also go with the red-eyed ape boon song, and more specifically, it would be that first appearance of him in the very beginning of the film. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which image best exemplifies this film? Then, if you would have to choose one frame that is the best image to show off to your friends what this is about, I would say, uh, yeah, I could go with the catfish sex scene. <laughs> I would go with the picture of a group of people that are holding the monkey by its neck with a rope. And I guess yeah. I would choose the one of the wider shots of the dinner scene where you can actually see everyone around the table. Yeah, I chose the princess scene because I also would like to show what kind of a sort of absurdities or what kind of a... <laughs> mind uh, exercise you have to go 
through in this film, at least as a Westerner, so to speak. What took you out of Uncle Boon Me? Well, I'd say the deep symbolism, it's often tightly knit to Thailand's culture. So if you don't understand this culture, it's hard to appreciate everything you see. And that explains the audience backlash, people running out of the theater after six minutes. But after extensive reading and after listening to Annie, watching the film now twice, I can now see that the film in a different light a little bit and some things make make more sense then again it's not so much about making the sense all the time it's an art film after all up to interpretation yeah what took me out the most was the last scene when tong and jen went out to dinner at the restaurant but they also see themselves on the bed i think that threw me out the most but as Kaori say, it was because probably an open interpretation film. And I've read like the interview by Joe. He explicitly said that the audience doesn't have to understand everything that happens in this film. That's his goal, actually, to not make everyone understand. Okay. Henrik. Yeah, I guess what took me out most... And this is something that took me out of the film kind of throughout the running time was the slow pacing. And a lot, extremely a lot of long shots which don't have that much, if anything, happening in them. For me, that was kind of a problem sometimes. I would say that this meditative quality works for a lot of the time. And for some of the time, it's not as effective as you wish it would be. I found it effective, but I'm not sure if it was in a way how the director was intending it. Like, it was effective in a sense that I did get into a meditative state while those scenes were playing. Almost this peaceful hypnotic state. But the downside of that stage is that you no longer are actively following the film itself. You are zoning out during those moments. Mm, perhaps. Or then you're paying even closer attention to the audiovisual world. But maybe at the expense of the plot or the dialogue. Well, I would kind of almost say that with the expense of being 100% mentally present throughout the entire running time of the film. Mm. I thought that at times some of the shots that ran for ages could have been even more painting-esque or even more interesting framed in a more interesting way so that you could enjoy it more than i did at points and that might have actually done it because in total not with counting some of the scenes like the dinner table scene there really is not that much in some of these longer shots. What pulled us in? I would say that it's the beautiful, meditative, painting-like cinematography by Sayompu Magdi Pram, or maybe Annie can give us the proper pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure well, if I have the spelling of it, I could probably pronounce it correctly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, we'll save it for later, but... I'm very interested to see the rest of this guy's work now and also the sound design personnel cannot be left 
outside of the mentioning as the film would not work at all without them either. It carries a lot of weight, the jungle or the nature noises. What pulled you in, Annie? I think the appearance of the red eye monkeys in the first scenes actually made me like very curious of what those creatures were. And then even though the early explanation in the film of what those creatures were still pulled me in further that I was hoping to see more of those. And just like what Henrik said, there were a lot of still scenes that didn't have to be that long and you could zone out really easily but there was this one scene where i think it was during when uncle bunmi went into the cave and there was a shot of a lot of maybe two pairs of red eyes and we know that they are the monkeys but then as it extends over time the eyes comes out more and it starts appearing as three pairs and then four pairs and then and that was really interesting for me because First, I'm not sure why Joe put that scene there. I don't know what he's trying to signify. I don't know the importance of the creature being in that particular plot moment. And why would they just suddenly appear? Maybe they're really attracted to Uncle Bunmi's death. That's it, probably. Mm. I guess I would also go with the first shot of the red-eyed monkey. <laughs> okay. It really works for the marketing of the film, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it does, and it does work in giving you a sense or giving you a feeling about the film. Although I'm not completely sure if it does work exactly like intended. I felt that the first shot of the red-eyed monkey was kind of a ominous. It was hinting that there was something darker and something even dangerous behind those eyes and... When the red-eyed monkey finally appears fully in the film, it turns out that he is not a threatening presence in any sense. Yeah, exactly. I think there's been some miscommunication online where people think that this is a sort of a slight horror film. And I saw some online comments like, Oh my god, I'm going to urinate my trousers when watching this with my friend. <laughs> so I, I understand some of the backlash, but... um. A bit surprised that even in the festivals, people would kind of walk out early on. Well, Cannes and other festivals are notorious for the fact that the audiences can walk out of the film during those the festival showings. It's come almost to a point where walking out from a film during a festival showing is kind of an event on its own right, and people are walking out of the films just to walk out from a film. But imagine what a fucking waste of time that is. I would just stick with the film. I would probably never leave a film when it's running, because it doesn't make sense. You already probably paid your money, you came there to sit to watch the film. If you're going to just leave the theater in the middle of the film, you cannot even say anything about the film, but anywhere there are these assholes who then go online that, oh my god, this film sucks, and I didn't even watch it, but I, it sucks anyway. And I don't understand this. Yeah. If, if you would at least watch the f film in full, then you would give your full opinion, like how terrible of an experience it was, and at least it was an experience. And now you're just wasting your time and money if you go in the middle. There might be a refund process that comes to play in here, 
if you walk okay. out a film like before half an hour mark, you might get a refund. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure about that because it's kind of an unheard of in Finland, but the rumors tell me that that is something that happens in the larger world. I feel like that happens with almost every film that isn't overrated or popular, though, that like people would prejudge it by watching like maybe five minutes of the film and then already making reviews and especially with this film where things are really slow with there's no action and it comes from a different culture uh, i'm not surprised that people would react that way yeah okay guys strongest act if you can speak of like very traditional acts here i think you might even so you have act one two three First, we'd need to define the acts, so act one probably ends around when we get to the family dinner. So the introductory part is done, then act two starts, act three, is it after the monk shower stuff? If we break it down like this, then act two would stand as the strongest for me, for what it's worth. I don't think it matters in this film what I name as the strongest act, but I will go with that. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's much of a concern in this film. <laughs> yeah, I would go with Act Two also. Yeah. That being said, like I can't choose any of the acts because I don't think it matters throughout the film. Yeah. At all. The most exciting moment of this film, I will go with catfish sex. Yeah, same. To me, it would kind of be Punmei recalling the his experiences during the war and killing the communists. Yeah. Scissors of sacrilege. What would you change in the film, or me? Well, th- here I would need to define what is lacking in the film. We're talking about the art house film, it's hard to say, because it's the artist's original interpretation of storytelling from beginning to end. But like I said, maybe there were shots that could have been more... If you're going to keep the audience watching a one frame for an hour and a half, then probably you could make it extremely visually or aesthetically appealing. And there, the cinematography is wonderful here. But if something to complain, then uh, I would make it even more exciting. I would make it more concise. I think some shots doesn't have to be that long, especially um, the one when they were walking to the cave and the one where they were exploring the yeah. cave. Like the yeah. cinematography in the cave was really pretty, and I really appreciate this that Joe brought out. And I've been to those caves myself, and I appreciate oh. how he could capture those things like on screen, exactly how it appears in real eye for people who've never been there. But um, I don't think it has to be shot that long. Yeah, yeah. walking to the cave was quite painful, I have to admit. Yeah. <laughs> I- I'm with Annie on trimming the length of the film making it shorter. I, myself, I did not have a problem with the scene where they walked to the cave because I felt that it did highlight how Boonmei has to go through a physical act of labor before he actually can finally die. Like, he has to make the trek to the cave. Yep. But I I would trim out some, some of the earlier scenes, the daytime scenes on the plantation, scenes like 
Jen just playing with the dog and maybe cutting few microseconds out of those longer sequences. All right, let's complete the sentence. You really know you're watching Uncle Boon Me when... Catfish. You really know you're watching Uncle Boon Me when you stare back at the red-eyed gorillas for one minute straight with nothing happening. <laughs> one, of, one of many, one of many. Where nothing is happening, basically. I would say you really know you are watching Uncle Poonway when Catfish Fox a princess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would say the same thing as Henrik. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, three adjectives to describe the film. I'll go with spiritual, mesmerizing, slow. <laughs> I would go with slow, magical, and abnormal. And I would take also slow to join the group here and tranquil and meditative. Yeah, that's good. And watch test. Did you look at your watch when you watched this film? Yes, I did. But, yes, uh, I did. <laughs> 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 I, 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 I guess numerous times fits for <laughs> all of us. Yeah, I. But also, it may speak a little bit about our level of attention spans. And the fact that how we've forgotten how to just relax and just not care and just, you know, succumb to the whole experience. Also, it takes like a while to appreciate and understand what is going on. You don't need to understand everything. Just let it, let it, let it go. Once you just give up, it's, it's okay. <laughs> but at, at the same time, and this once again may be something that is affecting you and me, Kari, because we are Westerners, and to us, kind of the uh, spiritual aspects of the film are unfamiliar. But yeah, yeah. to me, the film did propose a mystery. Like, it was asking me to understand what was going on and decipher what actually is going on, what the spirit wants, and what it's all about. And... I, on my end, felt that if your film asks questions from the audience and asks the audience to pay attention and try to decipher the film, in those moments you really should not throw the audience the curveball of making a film that you are not supposed to take in all the time and you are not supposed to follow consciously all the time and to make a film that deliberately tries not to make sense all the time. You're, you're kind of proposing a challenge to the audience to figure out what's going on and at the same time you are playing a game with the audience where you deliberately don't want them to actually figure out what's going on. And that's kind of a paradox. Perhaps, perhaps. You know, maybe everything in this film makes sense to the director <laughs> maybe that in his world is enough but when it comes to the spirituality and things that you understand only as a Thai person or somebody who understands Thailand very well that is kind of a, what I think the people who support it and who dislike this film they are both sides are kind of lost here of the essence of the film on one end it delves around subjects that are very universal you know afterlife and what happens after death and spirits but there is also the side that relates very very 
very much to Thailand. But overall, I think you can still enjoy this film very much without understanding anything about Thailand. For me, like my for my personal preference, I would give it like a six point five out of ten. But I think this film itself is just very rich in like meaning, symbols, and theme. So if we're considering on that aspect, I would say eight out of ten and very worth watching. I don't think you have to be Thai to understand the movie really well, but maybe if you have some like Buddhism concept that would help you appreciate the meaning and the symbols more. Yep. Okay. That was kind of my next question. Would you recommend this film, Uncle Boon Me? Uh, well, yes, I recommend uh, Uncle Boon Me, but it's a little bit perplexing question because there's a lot of layers to understand. But um, the overall story and uh, thematics is pretty clear. It's a solid film visually and artistically, but not maybe the favorite film of all time for me. Yeah, I would also recommend it, but also not favorite film. Yeah, Henrik. I kind of hate to be the negative Nancy here on this group, but I would not. Recommend Uncle Boon May. It's not a bad film. The flaws I have with the film are they are not entirely flaws. They are something that are tied to the art house films as a type of filmmaking. And if you choose to watch Uncle Boon May, there is a lot to like. It does have quite, I would even say, heartwarming tale of accepting your own mortality and kind of a meditating on the concept of mortality and meditating on the concept of past lives and reincarnation. I will not say that you would have a bad time with Uncle Poonmei if you choose to watch it, but Poonmei would not be a film that I would kind of take out of my shelf and give someone like, watch this. I, I would, yeah, I, I would pick a different DVD for that matter. And because of that, I I can't recommend watching Uncle Poon May. I kind of a hope that you still do check the film out. And I do believe that you might enjoy it a lot. But I have to give this one no recommendation. Henrik, I would just recommend this movie to everyone just to be awful. Especially for my sister. Watch this. This is the best horror film ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you will never think about catfish the same way again. Yeah, (laughs) that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I understand it. Like, it's not an easy watch. Overall, it seems that some many scenes drag on longer than they should have been. And it kind of hurts the experience where you start to look at your watch yeah and even if it wouldn't even if it wouldn't and even if you take on the argument that that is intentional and you are supposed to do exactly that there is a realm where a lot of the art house films do play but at the same time it's also something that a lot of art house films do do so why watch uncle poon may instead of you know some other art house film who also uses extremely long takes and extremely long shots 
in order to be meditative and to take you out of the experience. <laughs> Henrik, have you seen the A Ghost Story? Did we discuss this? Which one? It's called A Ghost Story. I I haven't seen that one yet. No. Yeah, it's one 2017 with Casey Affleck and directed by David Lowry. Yeah, I I've heard extremely lot of positive about it. I did hear that it's also some kind of an art house take very on, much, on the passing and you know the grief what the passing of a loved one can cause. But yeah, kind of in a pacing and in its spirit, I would recommend a ghost story for anyone who loves Uncle Boonmi. Extremely long shots. Yeah, and you know, now that it has been brought up, it might be that I like a ghost story extremely a lot. And after seeing it in the future, I might even give a recommendation to a ghost story. I'm trying to point out that I'm not automatically disqualifying films because it uses extremely long shots and long scenes and is slow. Like, those are not automatically forged in a film. And they are not automatically forged in Uncle Poonmei in a sense that I would go against the film because of that. But there, there is so many arthouse films that do the exact same stunt, so you kind of need something extra on top of that meditative state to kind of uh, make yourself special enough. Yeah, I really used to hate movies like this, Henrik, and I felt that everything like this, like Uncle Boon, we was really pretentious and complete shit, but <clears throat> I've come to <laughs> I've come to love some aspects about these because I studied kind of filmmaking and you can respect some things, but um, I'm not sure if it's always great if you find, you know, as a filmmaker or like an expert of video and cinema making some aspects that are fantastic, like some like visual aspects or audio aspects. You sit on your chair and you say, okay, that was cool. I enjoyed it because I know it was hard to do and technically it was fucking amazing. But for the general viewer, does it give anything? So I understand people's frustration. But Henrik, you know what? Don't play with your luck. It just might be that we watch a ghost story somewhere in the, in the future. And when you are busy driving with your car all around Finland in between, you have to make pit stops to watch extremely arthouse films and then review them with our international guests with like no time at all to get deeper into these crazy subjects. Well, I'm always up to the challenge. <laughs> Perfect. What an attitude. What an attitude. That's the podcast pretty much. My Pendrai. Where can you find us online? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. We have also, as noted before, this International Cinema Challenge running for the entire year of 2019. We'll be watching 20 films, all from 20 different countries. And this was one of them. Uncle Boonmi, thank you for joining us. But Henrik, what is our next film? That I I can spoil it to you. It's Uzumaki, finally. <laughs> and how many times have we done an outro for this film? But now it's finally coming out. It's finally coming out. Yeah, a Japanese horror film based on a manga involving spirals. And go ahead, you know your line. 
We are spiraling out of control. Thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, be- before we that... quit completely quickly, Annie, do you have anything you want to shout out here on the podcast? Web pages, yeah. movie projects, anything uh, you are working on that you want us to mention? Well, not so much, but I would like other people to like check out Joel's film, the, especially the one called Ten Years Thailand, because it's a short story, many short stories. I think I believe ten short stories compiled. It shows how like the political situation in Thailand is, how suppressed it is, how repressed it is, and I was hoping to raise awareness of that internationally, especially when. We just had an election last week or two weeks ago, and it was really rigged. It was really backwards. So hopefully, if it gains more international presence, the government would be pressured to do something about it or to change its mind on the election results because it's very obvious that they were cheating. <clears throat> and I think Joe he tries to. Not directly attack the government because he doesn't want to get into the trouble. But ten years in Thailand has been removed and censored from Thai cinema, so you can probably only find it online once it's released. It's pretty new; it was only released last year. So wait for that and check it out to see what the political atmosphere in Thailand is, and to see how people in Thailand really live. The majority of us do not live in Bangkok, so. Uncle Bunmi really captures the true experience of how majority of Thai lives and how the majority of Thai thinks, and I think Ten Years of Thailand will probably do the same or even better. Okay, very good. I hope everything will turn out for the best or the better. And definitely, thank you so much for joining us, despite all of this big difference in time zones and the. <laughs> Big subject matter and the complexity of it. So, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reviewing this film and thank you for spreading Thai culture. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs> and most definitely to our listeners, please do check out Ten Years in Thailand. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Hope to see you sometime. Next, maybe we will do more Thai films in the future, so we'd be happy to have you back on. All right, that would be pleasure to join. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Until next week, dear listeners. Kuuluks tässä nyt semmonen hirveä huulenpurina, tuulenpurina, huulenpurina. Tuulen pörinä.